That was quite a story, Wayne. I was kind of concerned for a moment where it was going. <laughs> there it is, yeah. It's kind of like my broken window story when I was little. Hope this one doesn't go wrong. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you do reveal to us a certain amount so we can trust you. And so now as we look at this idea of believing and trusting in you, especially for our young people and ourselves as parents and staff and as spiritual influencers in this world, we pray that no matter what happens, we can still trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago, I was at Umqua Community College. This is long before the shooting course. Uh, we knew some of the people there that were involved with the tragedy recently. But I was taking a biology class. And for those of you who don't know my background, I, I grew up pretty much as not a Christian. And every once in a while, though, in biology class in high school, I would ask questions. I would just randomly throw a question out there. I'm, because they would ridicule Christian, Christianity or creation every once in a while. And my grandfather kind of believed in it, but I didn't. But I would just throw a question out there. So here I was in this biology class. And the teacher was talking about millions of years and all of this. And I just threw a question out there. Well, what happens if you've got volcanoes in water? You know, something like that. And it, it was almost like it went on deaf ears. And that teacher ignored it. He's like, well, we can talk after class. And he moved on with his lesson. But one of his disciples, I'll call him that, came up to me afterwards and said, let me tell you something. And he was a biology major, very much fervent into biology. And he began to ridicule Christianity. And after he was done with it, he's like, well, what are you going to say now? <laughs> My old nature was a fighter. But I, at that point, I was a new person in, in Christ, and I, I didn't really know what to say. He's like, well, what about this, and what about that? And, and basically, I was silent. I really had no answer for him. I knew that I believed what I believed. I never really had to question it before. I was trusting that it was true. But I really had no answer for the guy. And you know, that bugged me for quite a while. I, I would go back to the pastor, because I, I had been baptized for about a year. I would ask him questions. He had given me a few answers, but really wasn't the depth that I really was looking for. And so I began to kind of struggle with some things. And then I had another encounter with this individual. And that picture back there is, is actually the fountain and the library is over near there. And sometimes this is where the guy would accost me would be the library. But one time, I was done with my math class, headed to the bus stop, because that's where I, I would ride the bus to and from Winston, Oregon, and I had another encounter with him. He was talking about this stuff again, and once again, I didn't have much of an answer for him. And I just asked a question, and I threw it on the screen. I, I, I used the newspaper as an object lesson. I said, you know, what if the, I think there was a hurricane at the time, an earthquake, and a bunch of other things that were in, this, in the new, one of the newspapers. I used to deliver newspapers. So what if I had a source that wrote about all these disasters, all the crime, and I just went down a whole list of things before it ever happened? You know, because reporters, they come later and they write about after the fact. And he kind of thought, well, maybe you're talking about a psychic, you know? Maybe, maybe uh, those guys, you call the phone number. Is that what you're talking about? Is that what your God's like? And he would kind of pick a fight with me about that. He's like, well, you know, I don't know. That might be interesting. So I had a little Bible, and I opened it up to Matthew 24. And I read to him Matthew 24. And by the time I was done, you know, I thought I did a good job witnessing. By the time I was done, he was scared, actually. He, he was almost like, when was that written? 
And he's like, did they invent that? You know, the Catholic Church invented that or whatever. And I said, no, this is written. And I gave a few, I, uh, I didn't know all the years, but I said it was written over a thousand years ago. Hmm. That's interesting. And I would see that guy around campus every once in a while. And I would think to myself, Lord, I just hope it goes somewhere beyond interesting for him. Because I don't have all the answers, but I know that you've given me peace. And I know my life has been a whole lot better since I've been a Christian than any other time before. I wouldn't give it up, even if I don't have all the answers. So, Lord, I hope it's more interesting to him, more personal to him than that. And that experience kind of echoes down through time, even to today. As we can look at the Bible, as we read this text, these things happen that you might believe. We typically think of prophecy. We typically think of, you know, let's prove that the Bible's right. But actually, in John chapter 14, Jesus is more interested in something personal. In John chapter 14, he says, You've heard how I said to you, I go away and I'm coming to you again. And we typically think, second coming, second coming. You know, this is what it's about. And that's true, that is what it's about. But it's also deeper than that. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I go to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. In verse 29, and now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you might believe. Typical proof text to say prophecy happens so that we might believe. But if you look at the context here, what is it saying? He says, I am coming to you again. I'm going away. And if you read the previous verses, it's saying, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. I'm going to come to you through the Holy Spirit. So as I wrestled with that idea of some, proving to somebody something about God, and as I look at this text, I realize it's, it's more than proving to somebody that they should believe or they should trust or they should do the right thing. If there is no personal conviction, if the Holy Spirit is not guiding that whole scenario, then I can prove all I want to somebody and they can walk up and say, oh, that's interesting. And we can do that in many subjects. And teachers, you know this. You know, it's... That's interesting, but you really want it to be deeper than that. At least I do. I mean, who wants to have people come and go from a, a school or a church or you know, name, name any religious institution and they know facts, but they don't know anything really deep down in their hearts. It mentions here the Father. Jesus is so focused on the Father, especially in these last chapters of John. All the way down to the end. And finally he says, Father, into your hands I commit myself. I commit my breath. But it says the Father is greater than I. There's something about having a personal relationship with God. Not just knowing Jesus, but this Father that he pointed us to over and over again. That enables us to do greater things than even Jesus did. And I believe when it happens, this coming is really what it is about, then we will do greater things than even Jesus did. He himself said that. And it will be through the Holy Spirit. And so he mentions, I will come to you. And he says, when I come to you, what the result will be, that you might believe. And this is what we see from the remainder of the Gospels and down through the book of Acts. In John chapter 17 onward, we find Jesus over and over again talking about the vine, talking about being connected, talking about this idea of trusting God, faith in God, that will get you through anything you ever face. In John 17, this is life eternal, that you may know me, 
the only, you may know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Jesus Christ is like a footnote there. He's, his main goal is knowing the Father. And how do I see this take place? John 17 onward leads up to the cross. It's, it's talking about the greatest personal sacrifice, at least I can find recorded. I, I find people that have been tortured and all this in history records. But this is somebody who's innocent and his claim is cosmic. It's saying, I could actually forgive you of those hidden thoughts. I could actually forgive you of things that you thought were well buried in your past that come up every once in a while in those dark moments of life because I've been through the darkness for you. The cross is a personal monument for each one of us that we can go to and see that he has been so kind to us. He has been so good to us to even bring us to this point here today. In Acts 1, you would think at that point, here they've seen Jesus die on a cross. They've seen soldiers say, well, sure, this is the Son of God. They've seen his side pierced and earthquake and almost looks like an eclipse type scene there in the Gospels. And then they hear of these soldiers quaking at his resurrection. All of this has taken place. The upper room where he's, they've touched and felt. And you get to Acts chapter 1. And he personally comes to them, and yet they still believe. They still believe that he's going to set up some earthly kingdom, that this is it. And what does Jesus do? He basically points them heavenward. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has pointed in his own authority, but you will be my witnesses. Basically, when the Holy Spirit is poured upon you, you will be my witnesses to the whole world. And so they see Jesus go up. And they have to let go of their quest for earthly power, earthly prestige. You see their education continuing in Acts chapter 2. Can you imagine having a group of people where you have a tax collector and a zealot in the same group? I mean, talk about a classroom where it could be really uh, problematic. I, the closest I ever came to that was myself and Mike Gonzalez in the same classroom. And I still remember we were like number one and number two fighters in the school. And my brother keeps saying, I think you might have been better than him. Uh, I don't think so. He's a cage fighter, okay? Uh, now he is. And so, put us in the same classroom. I mean, you're going to have constant distraction. And yet, there we were one day. Uh, there was uh, a group that was challenging our status as number one and number two. And we came together as friends. And we gathered a huge gang. I mean, it was a big gang of people. Knives and bars and all kinds of stuff. And here's all these other guys. And here's these two enemies, friends, for a day, for a common purpose. I mean, that happens in the world sometimes, doesn't it? But imagine a zealot and a tax collector. A zealot who says, down with the Romans. Anybody who opposes our system of faith, our religion, all of this, especially if you're a tax collector, may you be found in a pool of blood in the street one day with no witnesses, even if they saw it. That's one. And you got the tax collector who's constantly watching his back. And yet here these two are. And in Acts chapter 2, there's no age-old argument of who's the greatest. Jesus has gone up, and they all know who's the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. We're all one. We're all equal in Jesus. And so they pray for this Holy Spirit that he talked about, that when it comes, I will come to you, and you will believe. You will trust me. 
you will go to the uttermost parts of the earth through that power. So Acts chapter 2, we find the Holy Spirit comes, pours out, literally rocks their world there. And in Acts chapter 3 onward, they turn the world upside down. This is all through the teachings of Jesus, all through his instructions. And then that still small voice that comes, works through us and helps us to believe in Jesus. We know this is still our experience today, our education today. You know, there was a song that we were going to sing today called The Waymarks, and we replaced it with a different song. But as I think of The Waymarks, and, I, and as I think of typically, we, we like to like, you know, there's a, there's a tendency, isn't there? I remember one time somebody told me, uh, they were at church, it was Sabbath, did you see the headline? No, I didn't see the headline. No, it was this morning. This morning? Like Sabbath? Now, I'm not going to get into works here. I'm not going to condemn people who read the news on Sabbath. But, but my focus was nowhere near there. But I, I know that a lot of times we're told to have our hand on the newspaper and our hand on the Bible. And the waymarks type of thinking does that. But what is the waymark? I mean, it's Jesus. This can can help somebody who's maybe doubting as you show them things from the scripture, like that young man. But the gospel going to the world in Matthew 24 is the way mark, the sign, and then the end will come. And as the scripture reading was being read, it said the just will live by faith, but before that it talked about not being ashamed of this gospel. Somehow it takes root in our lives to the point where it will stand against all tests for all time. In Revelation 22, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. There is this concept that Jesus teaches about, about the Holy Spirit, all the way down to the last verses of Revelation, where God's bride, his church, is one with him to the point where the Holy Spirit is speaking through them to call people to Jesus. And so when it comes to pass, it's talking about the Holy Spirit being poured out. And that Holy Spirit will point to Jesus' words, Jesus' actions, and Jesus working through us. This is a living relationship. It helps others believe. And so there I was. That newspaper tactic didn't really work the way I wanted it to. But I met him again on that bus stop, this college student on Umqua Community College campus. And I had shared with him from Matthew 24, and so that was still resonating in his mind. It was resonating in my mind. And then he comes along, and I'm sitting under the tree doing my math homework. He comes up, and he wants to pick a fight again, a spiritual fight. And I said, what? You know, what is it with you? Why, don't you? why don't you even want to give this even a, a place on your shelf to consider? And he said, you know what? If God is real, then prove it to me. If I'm, I'm hungry right now, and if God is real, then he would know that. And he would give me something to eat right now. So I closed my math book, put it in my backpack. What's in the, what's in the backpack? An apple. I reached, grabbed the apple, stand up. He's still going, I've got his back to me a little. He's just, just really antagonistic. I said, here. He turns around, and he's almost like he touched a hot stove or something. <laughs> like that. I said, you said you were hungry. Here's an apple. And that still small voice basically was the one who told me, you can have my apple. You know, Murray, you have an apple right there in your backpack. That was that Holy Spirit, that still small voice, that not, don't argue with this guy. He, he's got it all in his mind. He, he's basically never going to be able to concede anything. 
And truly, there is some science to the scriptures anyway. But I believe we must be the vessels. Because Jesus said in John 14, I shall no longer speak many things with you. But he also talked about the spirit would. For the ruler of this world comes and he has nothing in me. Jesus was filled with something. Because the, there was no room for the prince or the ruler of this world to fill him with anything else. What was he filled with? He himself tells us, doesn't he? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. You can find that whole mission statement of Jesus. And he goes on, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father has given me commandment, even so I do. It was a commandment to love one another. Arise, let us go away from here. And so the world has nothing in Jesus. The prince of this world has nothing in Jesus. The love of heaven is his constant contemplation. The work of the Father is his task. The death to himself is the finish line. That's an amazing example, isn't it? And it throws questions back at me. And I, I don't ever preach a sermon, it's, it's a mirror. Murray, is the love of heaven my contemplation? Is the work of the Father my task? Is the death to Murray my finish line? Because this is how he even obeys the Father. He obeys the Father out of love, not out of compulsion. It's like uh, you come to your child, and you all know, um, whether it's a classroom or a home or a church, discipline can be tricky sometimes. And I still remember my principal, you know what he would do? He would, he would take you by the neck, or right here, and he would put you down to the ground. I was in junior high school, dusting my knuckles off from a fight, and I come into his classroom as a substitute, and he, he in the hallway afterwards, still could put me down to the ground. That was my principle. Now, I remember that. Years later, he's, he's actually, during this college experience I'm describing to you, he's actually helping proofread my papers because he was an English, basically an English teacher, and helping me overcome some of these academic hurdles that I had trouble with. But I still had that respect for him. But really, is that what remains the rest of your life, that you're going to obey because Mr. So-and-so can put you down at the ground? This is not the father we're talking about here. This is like coming to somebody that you love and saying, you know what, I really need some help with this. Or I could really use you in this way. You know, I could really have your, I'd love to have your support this way. And you willingly do it. That's the love we're talking about here. The Father and Him, their plans are intertwined. Their thoughts, in essence, are combined. And yet, we're told in the Scriptures, this same thing will happen to us if we know Jesus. So He was filled. goes all the way to Gethsemane comes to me through the Holy Spirit, comes to you. And so every day my challenge is just this, listening. Listening for that still, small voice. Listening in every encounter I come up against. When I'm up at the academy giving a pastor's worship, I'm like, Lord, which story do you want me to tell today? And it's amazing. Uh, the more stories I tell and the more times I get to tell stories, I'm like, Lord, I don't have any stories left. And then, then within a week or two, there'll be more stories. It's like a continual supply. I'm like, Lord, I'm going to be open. I'm going to listen. I'm going to try to find something, not just for the young people, but because it speaks to me as well. And so I want to get to the point where I'm hearing his voice daily, to the point where there is nothing in me of darkness. I have a promise from the scriptures in Galatians 2.20 that that's possible. It says, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I can live. I'm still part of this equation. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So I want to claim that. And so we must continually place ourselves in settings to learn from him. What does this boil down to on education Sabbath? 
That's what discipleship is all about. That's what this whole thing has been about, trusting God to provide the education we need from day-to-day experience, from schools, from churches, and yeah, uh, all the way out in the world as well, in our homes. And the result is something wonderful. That's the scripture reading, Romans 1.16. The just will live by faith, trusting, believing. It's a future tense. It's saying it builds up to the point where you're not ashamed of the gospel and you keep trusting no matter what. So how are we doing at our homes with this? Trusting and believing. Now there's a prayer I pray over my children. If I get home late at night, I used to travel Hayfork, Whitmore, Weaverville, and I'd get home like 11 o'clock at night, and I'd be like, Lord, I really need to pray for my children. They're asleep, but I need to pray for them. I, I feel this desire to pray for them. And I walk by the room and I hold my hands up, and I say, Lord, help them grow up to be the people you'd have them to be. And it's a simple prayer, but that shapes my interaction with them. You know, when, when it comes time for a conversation over something that maybe is disagreed about or, or a decision, which typically we do get input, quite a bit of input from our kids, but there are times when you have to make that decision. I want them to know I'm doing it for their well-being. And so at home, I keep listening for that still small voice. Murray, you were a little harsh. Maybe you need a timeout. One minute for every year. 36 minutes. Go sit in your chair. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent who's been around kids lately, you know those moments happen. And that 36 minutes, be 37 soon, help. Because then it gives you that time to mull it over and say, okay, how can I approach this child differently? Now, I know I can't do that in the middle of a situation where I have to deal with something. And the teachers, you know, you can't just step out for 36 minutes. But at home, how are we interacting with these little ones? Reminds me of that whole thing in the Old Testament, leading the flock as fast as they can go as far as their speed. How am I doing at home with that? Because what you do at home will affect what happens at the school. The school really is, as you take it, think about the children who go from home to the school, that's a big chunk of their day. Then they come back home, and that's the other chunk of their day. Now, we at church, we supplement that, really. That's the best we can do, really, with a midweek service or youth activities or, or one, uh, worship service, you know, different things. We supplement. The church is, is this, these are all intertwined. And so what happens at the home eventually makes its way to the school and the church and it makes its way to the society. That's why the book Education is very clear about the role we have in the home, influencing our children. And frankly, who doesn't remember their dad sitting down with them and doing the homework with them? Or the mom who's really good at math and helps you wreck that problem. You know, there's, there's something about that parental involvement. I still remember I was practicing for soccer and my dad, as busy as he was, and I knew he had jobs to do, construction and also on the ranch, taking that soccer ball out with me. I mean, it, there weren't very many of those type of memories, but I still remember cherishing those. And so at home, it's very important. Here at the church, it's very important to have that safe atmosphere as well, and at school as well. I put school last because it's segue into where I'm going next. The RAA vision statement, in case you're not aware of it, is empowering students to be, to be the light of the Jesus that changes the world. It's, it's a tool in God's hand. Your home is also that. And our church is also that. 
But imagine students empowered to be the light of the world. Not to, I mean, this is a being experience. Jesus in their lives to the point where they're shining out and changing the world. That's a wonderful vision statement. That's a worthy task. That takes many facets and many forms. But that's what we're talking about here. And that's why when I was talking about taking those flyers and inviting people, I'm not just saying, hey, you know, I got to do this as a pastor, promote Christian education. I'm saying, truly, there got to be some students, and maybe I could have really benefited from it when I was going through public school, that need this type of safe environment. I didn't get this type of safe environment until years later. I wish I would have gotten a little bit younger. Maybe you know some students like that. Maybe you know some students who, you know, parents are busy, working both jobs. They need a safe place to bring their kids. Maybe you know students, maybe even in your own neighborhood, where you watch and you know that they would need something like this. That's what that flyer is for. It's not meant to just go home with you in the bulletin. Find some individuals who you would like this vision to take place for in their lives. Pray for them, encourage them, and then when the Lord leads you through the Holy Spirit, invite them. So there I was, back on that campus. This is our, pretty much our closing story. He had gotten the apple, and then every time I saw him after that, he would almost freeze. You know, he'd just be like, almost like he was going to bring an argument, but he, he would pause. And then we got into the library one day. I'm over there once again. I'm just, I don't remember what subject I was studying. I just remember I was in a book of some kind, and I hear a shuffle over here, a long kind of wooden library table, and it's him at the end of the table sitting down to have some study time, and I know where this is going to go. A magnet doesn't, you know, this, every time we get together, it's like, it's like that. And I wasn't bold enough back then to be on the, the delivering end of it most of the time. So this time I was surprised at myself. I, he started saying these same old arguments about God and trusting God and believing in God and this whole rigmarole that he would go down. And I just said, can I just ask you a few questions? What is your goal after you get done getting your biology two-year degree here? Well, I'm going to transfer on to get a bachelor's degree. And what then? And I kept asking this question, what then, what then? We get all the way to his retirement and his house, two houses and RV and all of this. And I said, okay, you start drawing Social Security too and, and, and then, then you die. What then? That was the boldest thing I had really said to this guy in, all, in that whole year. It was quiet. And we were getting pretty vocal in the library, and the librarian was, you know, looking over there. But at that point, it was silent. You die, then what? And I thought, what's going to happen to your RV? What's going to happen to your houses? He never really gave me an answer, but I think that was down at the heart of it. Maybe he needed to see, against all the other arguments I could come at him with, that deep down when I die, I have something I can trust beyond the grave. I have something I can believe in. It's not just a placebo effect either. It's not just a panacea for your mind. It was something that I truly believed in. And I said, you know what, when I die, next thing I'm gonna know. According to what this Bible says, which I read to you about Matthew 24, I, that was, thousand, over, you know, it was quite a bit before your newspaper, all these things it talks about, the biggest thing it talks about is after we die, there's hope. That's what I have.
He never argued with me again after that. I don't know if that was the right thing to say. It wasn't the most flowery thing to say. It wasn't the most eloquent thing to say. I mean, you're talking about somebody who, who barely could even read this Bible when he first picked it up. But that's what I said. And as I say that and share that, this, this discussion comes back to us. We go day in and day out through our lives. We have a wonderful instrument of Christian education, church, school, home. But when it's all said and done, what really matters? It's, it's his presence, isn't it? It's his confident knowledge that he is personally the one I believe in, and he's the one I'm sharing with others. And so since then onward, I keep having an ever-deepening and abiding friendship with him daily. Witnessing to me is not compulsion. It's just telling about my friend. It's like John in John chapter 5. He was a lamp that shone and gave light. He was filled with something. I want to be filled and just shine for Jesus. I want to be like that vision statement, a light to others that changes the world. And he's a friend that's going to come back to get all of his children soon. These children remind us of that simplicity in our homes, in our school, in our church. God has, in his mercy, provided these children to us. And you young people, you know, you challenge us and keep challenging us because you have an important witness to us as adults. When things get really complicated and your simple faith is there and your trust is there, that's what we need. And so for young and older light, I want to look forward to this friend who's coming back. I want to believe that soon and very soon we're going to rise on these eagle wings that these students are going to sing about here in a moment. But this is really what we have to look forward to. So I'm going to invite our young people forward. You see in your bulletin there, six to eight graders are going to sing a song, Eagle's Wings. And after that, I'll have a closing prayer for our staff and our teachers.
I'm going to pray for the parents, the young people, and but also I want to ask the staff and the teachers to stand first, because I want to pray for them at the beginning of this prayer. So if you're a staff member or a teacher, please stand. And so parents, church members, every day, these are the people we should be praying for, as well as our children. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that the palms of Jesus bear record of your love for us, those nail-scarred hands. I lift up these teachers before you, Lord, and the staff, and many that are not here that help with the operation of the academy. Place them in your hands. I trust that you are molding them, making them the people you'd have them to be so they can mold and shape and help our young people be the people you'd have them to be. Give them wisdom when they need it, patience as well, that balance between discipline and love which really goes together. And most importantly, Lord, keep giving them that personal love for you. As parents, we ask the same for us. When the children are home with us, give us that same balance of love, challenge, and Lord, the wisdom and the peace that we need sometimes when the situations seem to get a hold of us. And here at church, Lord, help us to be a support to everything that's going on in the home, the school, out in the world as well that these children are doing. Lord, we place ourselves in your hands. We trust you. We look forward to the day when our belief will be met with your face and face to face will be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming today. God bless you.